episode 8 of the Bible Reset podcast. This episode contains the second half of our interview with Dr. Janine Brown. If you haven't listened to the first half yet, I'd encourage you to go check that out in episode 7. The second half continues our discussion on genre and gets into the, how the genre of story that's found in the Gospels actually helps us craft our theology rather than simply serving as a backdrop for the quote-unquote meaty theology that's found in Paul's letters. Hope you enjoy the second half of our interview with Dr. Janine Brown. Now tell us a little bit about letters. What do letters do? Oh, well, you know, I'm writing a commentary on Philippians today. I mean, I'm writing this, this season of just having begun this process. Mm. Um, and I love Philippians. It was one of my manuscripts from university that came in the mail. I taught it my whole second year of... Um, um, maybe it was the, the, the semester of my, my sophomore year, I was a small group leader and we were all studying Philippians at the same time. So I led it in my small group. Um, and what, so we, we usually talk about letters as more straightforward. I mean, it is, it is more, he's telling us what to think and do, whether it's Paul or, you know, in, in the other general epistles. Um, it's more often explicit, but I have to say, it's not always explicit. I mean, there's a lot of implicit um, communication because there can be, because especially with Paul's letters, he knows this community in Philippi, this church that he's founded, according to Acts, and they know him. And we're catching we're catching the writing in midstream. That's always the case. We're kind of midstream catching their relationship, and the writing is about that relationship. So we have to infer many things. So it's not fully explicit, but the communication is more um, he's he's writing to them to affirm what they're doing and or tell them about his situation, encourage them, exhort them. Uh, so it feels a little more direct. I think you said there's a more direct communication, but there's so much that's ex- implicit. And you could read... 12 dissertations on Philippians and come up with 12 different scenarios for why this letter needed to be written and how Paul wrote it and what he meant by it. So there's, um, I'm at that stage where I'm just trying to digest and figure out exactly how I'm going to write this short little Tyndale New Testament series, Philippians commentary, which was my first commentary at Mott by Ralph Martin, mm, Philippians nice. Tyndale commentary. Um, so there are gaps, there are assumptions that we have to try to fill in. Um, the tendency in, in, um, letters is to focus on the argument that, um, the argument of the letter, kind of the, um, explicit argument going on, even though we have to sometimes fill in gaps here. I've been really helped by, um, rhetorical criticism that helps us, helps us to think also about, um, Paul's ethos when he writes, how is he putting himself forward and how does that contribute to what we're hearing? And then pathos. So you have logos, pathos, ethos, and kind of generally speaking in, in um, first century rhetoric. Um, and the pathos is kind of tapping into that emotive level. What is what is Paul wanting his audience to feel? So it's very interesting. It's not just like poetry at all, but there is a sense where Paul wants to engage his the Philippians on a emotive level or on a personal level, as well as just cognitively. So I think um, I've been trying to really wrap my mind around those kinds of, that kind of holistic reading of a letter. And I'm way too deep into, into the weeds right now. So I'm probably not going to be helpful talking about sort of a, a quick overview. Um, but really reading it 
as a piece of communication between Paul and this group that already knows things about Paul and he already knows stuff about them and they're in a relationship. They might be in a more contested relationship like the Corinthians. It might be in a more distant relationship like in Romans where he's not met them yet, but they've heard of him, you know, but Philippians is this rich relational. Mm -hmm. They just know each other and seem to care deeply and are concerned for one another. I call it relational anxiety. Because that language of anxiety actually comes up in chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. There's this deep relational concern for the other. He's in prison. They've been concerned. They send Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus gets sick. Oh, my goodness. He comes back so that they won't be concerned. And it's just like this whole warm, lovely relational community that does have some issues, yes, but that is based on this this already existing relationship that just is intriguing to me at present. So, Janine... um... There's a wide range of people that listen to our podcast. There are people that already love the scriptures, but we we have people uh, as well who want to love the scriptures, but find it, especially if they're trying to take in the, the scriptures as a whole, find it to be a disjointed exercise. They start in Genesis, crackling good story to get, get it going, but then very quickly, you know, we're into the weeds with Leviticus that comes up quickly, law codes, and then later on there's land distributions that go on for chapters and chapters. So the question is, is is this, you know, for a lot of people, it's a bag of beads without a string. And um, I think the Bible Project people try to sort that when they say that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. So can you talk a little bit about how all of these genres, not just narrative genre, how all of it then tells kind of a single story. Yeah, um, people have been writing now for maybe 20 years about the meta narrative of scripture, you know, thinking about that broader context, wider context, what links all of the canon together. Um, I really appreciate Richard Bacham's work on that, N.T. Wright. Um, Bacham points out that we actually have a, a lovely, lovely little summaries kind of that walk across the text so that I guess. Some in, there's one in Deuteronomy and Nehemiah, Acts 7, mm. where, uh, where we can hear kind of a summary of the whole story up to this point. He, he starts to look for those in his work and points them out to us to say, internally, we have this sense that the whole made sense and people were making sense of it. Um, other people like... Um, Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen, you know, to sketch out like six acts of the whole uh, biblical story, uh, creation, fall. I like to add a few more pieces into the the number of acts, but creation, fall, promise, Israel's um, life as filling out that promise, and then exile and return, um, Messiah, kingdom, this already not yet, uh, renewal of creation far, you know, kind of at the end of all things. So um, however many scenes you sketch out, um, there's this sense where there's a coherence and biblical writers later are drawing on the earlier parts of scripture, often for their storied potential. I think that's what really got me into the Old Testament in the new, the intertextuality, the use of Old Testament new is because I started to see that even if a smaller section of text was quoted, you can't quote, you know, all of Deuteronomy or something, you'd be quote a bit of it. There might be a lens, the biblical, the New Testament writer might be thinking about the story and wanting to play on the story. 
Um, so the, the idea that later writers are using this, not just the texts of the Old Testament, or even, um, yes, but, but are using, are drawing on the story seems really a rich place for contemplation for me. So this sense of all of it hanging together in a storied kind of way um, makes sense not of all of, not just of all of the narrative parts of scripture, but all of scripture. Yeah, that's great. And um, I don't know if any of us have personal stories about uh, misreading genre or not taking genre into account. I know that I see uh, not infrequently online uh, people that'll share a, an article or something on on Facebook or Twitter or something from like The Onion or Babylon Bee or one of these satire sites not understanding that it's satire and saying, you know, see, these people understand, they, they get what I'm saying. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. they look, they look so silly on there. Um, yeah. The phrase for that, the phrase for that these days is he ate the onion. Yeah, <laughs> if you uh, eat yeah. exactly. You, you take the onion as a news source. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. But that's He's just, it's such a good, it. yeah, exactly. It's such a good um, example of like, you have to know the genre of what you're what you're getting into, or you, or you might look silly about it. I don't know if if anybody else has any any examples. I think the one I hear most used, even in teaching settings, as as an example, is the use of proverbs as promises. Mm. Yeah. Proverb is a general statement about the way God has set the world up, and it's meant to be used for wise living. Um, but when you make them promises, um, you um, you can get into trouble. Uh, I love yep. my favorite example that these are generalities and not promises. Um, some of them move more toward promise likeness because they talk about the character of God. And then the character of God is a stable thing that doesn't have this sometimes one day on the next day, not so much. Um, but the, um, in Proverbs 26, um, there are two Proverbs right next to each other. Answer a fool according to their folly or they will be, they will, um, oh, now I forget the, the, the last part. And then don't answer a fool according to their folly, or you will be like them. So answer cool according to their folly, or they will look, they will think they're right in their own eyes, something like that. And to say, okay, these are generalities about how to live wisely. And when you're dealing with in a, in a fool in biblical terms, Psalm 14 is somebody um, who thinks there is no God, who acts and lives in life as if they are the master of their universe. When you're dealing with somebody like that, tricky. <laughs> you know, could go this way, could go that way. Depends. Yep. You have to be, you have to wisely apply the the proverb. That's the point: is figuring out when that applies. Um, yeah. So that's one example that kind of is easy to poke at. Um, yeah. What am I supposed to do with this fool? Yeah. 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 Just just to piggy, piggyback on your idea of people looking at a proverb and interpreting it um, as a promise has real life application and um, often painful um, results. I, as in my former life as a pastor, uh, I could tell you numerous times when I had distraught parents mm -hmm. came to me and, you know, they had read this proverb, which, you know, I can quote it in the King James version, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. And they saw that as a promise. And they'd actually, in many cases, sadly, had friends that had reinforced that with them, that had challenged them about their parenting. And, um, you know, there was there was real pain 
and shame and things things like that that um, are the result of simply misunderstanding the way that you would would read a genre. So these are not just academic yeah. exercises; they're real life implications yeah. here. Another one I would raise is in the Gospels, um, realizing that, uh, you know, these are narratives, yes, but um, they fit really fairly well um, the f- um, category of Greco-Roman biography, not fully, I mean, they're, you know, but they, they do fit contours formally and also in terms of the kinds of content. One really helpful note on these biographies, called bioi, that's a Greek term, um, they, they will regularly interrupt chronology for the purpose of theme. Hmm. Well, that helped me a ton because Matthew, Mark, and Luke have some of the stories within Jesus' Galilean ministry in different orders. But I could look at that as a kid because I had to say the Bible is always true and, and never disagrees amongst it's in within itself and that was I just would have been a disagreement so I couldn't really look at that nobody really showed me that we all kind of ignored that mm-hmm. um, but instead of doing that to say well so what thematically is happening in Matthew 8 through 9 when G, uh, when Matthew brings together Jesus's healings nine or ten of them in short order to emphasize Isaiah 53 4 he will take our diseases he will carry our illnesses oh you know so you just make the make sense of all of this um yeah so he has nine or ten mostly healings and some you know some other miracles it's just it's very rich when we can think about it theologically and knowing the genre helps us to do that i talk about that quite a bit in the uh, gospels and stories book I, i introduce that and then kind of assume that in my second and third chapters that we're going to see a gospel writer doing, having more freedom than we would think in a biography to um, take these episodes and arrange them in a way that helps the author really emphasize something. Yeah, yeah What you were just getting into there, Janine, makes me realize that there's another question kind of in the background there. So Matthew does a particular thing according to his theme where he groups a, a set of stories together about healing and maybe that gets us partly down the road about the question, why do we have four Gospels? Why not just tell one true story of Jesus that lays out his life, even, you know, without just narrating prose about Jesus, but simply um, telling us stories about Jesus. But why four different shapings of that story? Why do we need four Gospels? And is that is there anything to be gained by having four pictures of Jesus? The early church clearly thought it was some, there was something to be gained. Even though we can talk about Tatian's Dia Tesseron, early second right, century, basically right. a harmony of the Gospels. Somebody was out there doing a harmony early on. That's, that impulse has always been with us. And historical Jesus research is just sort of a more um, sort of nuanced scholarly way of, of doing that kind of, how do all these fit together? Do they? Yeah, and how? yeah right. Um, and, and those are uh, fair questions and fine questions. Um, I always, I always want to emphasize there's something of deep value in hearing the four distinctly, because they give us, in a sense, more. They, you know, um, John gives us stories that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have. So just in terms of sheer amount of stories of Jesus, we have more because we have four gospels. But the way they're arranged helps to emphasize something about who Jesus is, what God is up to in Jesus, what the kingdom is about, who we should be in response to all of that discipleship. 
um, there's ways that each of the gospel writers give us some powerful messages um, that are maybe um, just uh, under the surface in another gospel or just um, touch, touched on, and and what another gospel writer will lay into that one. Um, so um, I'm trying to think of a really good, quick example. I mean, you could certainly John, uh, the way John, uh, John's distinctiveness is obviously clear as you read John, but the fact that he brings in um, a number of key Jewish festivals and then Jesus. So that's chapters five through ten, and Jesus in each of those contexts becomes the center of that festival. So in the festival of booths in chapters seven and eight, maybe nine, um, he is um, he is described as giving water and the one he is the light of the world. Well, those are the two key themes of that festival in Jewish celebration: mm-hmm. light and water. So you just have, you know, so you have. Um, Jesus is light of the world in a way you don't, and against that backdrop of the festival of booze in a way that none of the other gospel writers have time to address potentially, right? You don't have the festival of booze. We have Passover being kind of the key festival in the synoptics. And it still is a key festival in John, but he can, he brings in the other festivals in this amazing way. I'm really glad we have John. Janine, another thing you talk about, I think, in both of your books is this idea of intertextuality. That's a big word, kind of a scholarly word. But the fact that it's both in your book on the Gospels and in your book on Scripture as Communication tells me it's a pretty big idea and pretty important. So what is that? And how should regular Bible readers kind of be tuned into that? Is there something there for them to to learn to be better Bible readers? I think so. And I think it's a pretty accessible thing if we get a, you know, take the word intertextuality out of the mix, which is about texts really echoing other texts. So mm. uh, in the New Testament, uh, the focus of this is how does the New Testament, how do the New Testament writers use the Old Testament? Intertextuality studies of the past 20 years, 30 years, um, really have pressed into, I mean, because so we have citations. This was to fill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah and in Matthew has 10 of those, at least, kind of the, generally in that number range, of uh, these fulfillment quotations. Those are, every time you see one of those, if you're a Bible reader, go back and read mm. what was said. Um, not necessarily to find Jesus in the Old Testament, um, um, but to, to, to find, you know, to hear the context and to say, oh, what, how are they drawing on that? How is the author drawing on that? Um, allusions which aren't set up with the quotation um, formula um, and isn't, isn't maybe it's just four or five words from the Old Testament. It's still important. Go back, read the context. Yeah. See if there's a storied way that that's brought into the New Testament text. I'll give you an example in just a minute. Um, and then the, the newer thing is echoes. So you have um, Richard Hayes's book, Echoes of, of Jewish Scriptures or Scriptures in Paul and Echoes in the Gospels. Um, and these are just little evocations. I mean, potential connections. I have an article I've written on the renewal of creation in John from Catholic at Biblical Quarterly, now 10 years old. Um, and I argue that we don't only have Genesis 1 in chapter 1 of John, but we have it in chapters 19 and 20 in the Passion Narrative. Mm, wow. Behold the man. She thinks he's the gardener. 
It's all set in a garden. These are Genesis 1 echoes. And the only way I can argue echoes is by multiplying, you know, hearing them multiplied. Um, and when he breathes, Jesus breathes on the disciples after his um, death and resurrection. Um, that's the God breathes into Adam. They're, that everybody recognizes that one. But you just you hear echoes in their multiplication rather than just uh, one at a time. You've got to kind of hear them, I think, piled up. Um, one echo, I, all right, and this is maybe an illusion. It's hard to know the difference sometimes. But it is in Matthew 18. 18, when Peter says to Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister? Seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times. These numbers are important in Genesis 4 in the Lamech story, where um, it's not about forgiveness seven or 77 times, it's about vengeance seven or 77 times. Uh, and so I, I highlight this in my Matthew work, um, that really we have this exponential spiraling out of control of revenge in Genesis 4 after sin enters the world. And Jesus now speaks of this lavish forgiveness, this spiraling out of forgiveness that's supposed to happen under the um, in the kingdom, um, kind of yeah, in his teaching. And his disciples are to kind of live out this kind of lavish forgiveness. So it's just a little, um, um, it's just 7 and 77. And yeah. the Septuagint has the same language um of the same numbering kind of 77 times seven times but it the context is so clearly evocative it's thematically that i think it's it's a good example of an illusion or an echo yeah so much and more than proof, so much more than proof texting right i mean i think there's this minimalistic way we're sometimes taught that the the bible quotes you know the new testament quotes the old testament and it's proof texts for something and that's just a, a a flat way of kind of thinking about this you, the way you're describing it it's so much more rich and deep and, and story it, it's got that story uh, connection story aspect yeah it's it's an illusion it's an echo so i think the more you read the bible the more you'll be tuned into this and then the more you do that it just your Bible reading just gets richer and richer because you're hearing these things that come from earlier in the Bible. And what a great reversal from vengeance to forgiveness. I mean, that's a powerful thing right there. It's preachable. <laughs> I yeah. have students say, I can preach that. <laughs> Let's go a little little further with this idea, uh, Janine. I think oftentimes, and you mentioned it early on in your uh, in the podcast that you kind of cut your teeth on the, the letters, and that was kind of your frame of reference. And out of the letters, you know, we get theology, and this is where real systematic theology is birthed. Not so much in the stories. The stories are are kind of nice, and they create a framework. But but in your book, you have a chapter that's called "How a Story Theologizes." So, can you talk a, a little bit about the relationship between stories and how stories? Theologize. Yes, um, this I loved writing that chapter because it was sort of the theoretical chapter, and then the next chapter was in Mark and how Mark portrays God um, it, narratively. You know, kind of across the sequence of the story. Uh, I think there's a lot here, and I think we're just getting started in theology in biblical studies, um, biblical studies folks who want to do theology, in really paying attention to the genre in which theology is done. Because all 
all genres can theologize, but they do it in different ways. Um, so um, you have to push against first the assumption that theology is always explicit and and often framed sort of acontextually. <laughs> you know that the as soon as we get it out of the details into something more propositional, acontextual, that's that's where we do theology. I just don't think that's how the New Testament writers do theology. I love Beverly Gaventa's language of the blessed messiness of the text. And she does a she has a lovely article on theology in Romans 14 and 15, weak and strong passage, and that that does sort of theology within that textual messiness. You know, just kind of just, I always say stay close to the ground. When you're doing theology, do not go up in an airplane, stay in a hovercraft. <laughs> Stay close to the ground of the text and kind of come up for air, look around, make, you know, do kind of your synthesis, but do it close to the ground um, rather than look for the most abstract principle you can find from a text. I'm not big into principalizing. I think we do, it, it is fine to do principalizing, but not as sort of your main way of thinking about theology. Um, and, and so when we think about how it biblical writers theologizes, um, I, I like to stay close to the ground with them on that topic. Um, listen for what's implicit. Uh, you would never know in Matthew that Matthew's interested in his Christology and his portrait of Jesus to portray Jesus as wisdom. If you were only looking for explicit statements, you wouldn't find it. Um, you can hear some in Paul and other places, but not, not in Matthew. But in chapter 11, that is actually on the front burner in terms of his Christology. Jesus is tied to wisdom, verses 2 and 19, they form kind of an inclusio, and, and the deeds of the Messiah is are tied to the deeds of wisdom. There's a connection there. And then Jesus speaks out of the wisdom tradition when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's how wisdom speaks in Proverbs, mm. in Jewish texts, post-Proverbs. So there's this, across the chapter, this way of framing who Jesus is, but it's not going to be spoken explicitly. Surprise, surprise, we're in narrative. Not everything is explicit. It used to be that we did Christology in the Gospels through titles. It's like you looked at Son mm. of Man, Son of David, Son of God, and Christos, of course, Messiah. And that was how you did your Christology. And that's a fine place to start, but it's not a good place to end. I mean, you need to add in, what does Jesus do? What does he say? What do people say about him? What does the narrator imply about him? How does the narrator structure the story? All of that is is relevant to Christology, who Jesus is. Um yeah, I'll stop. Maybe stop there in terms of examples. But um, there's this way of hearing the story and saying, "Who do we hear Jesus to be, or what do we hear we are to do?" Discipleship. You have all the major um, areas you might think about theologically in a, in a gospel, for example. I'm trying to do that now with Philippians, which is interesting to say because I have these little sections on theology that I write on, and I'm trying to, to figure out what in the world I'm going to do with these. Am I going to try to be comprehensive on the passage I just covered? Am I going to take one facet that's intriguing to me and flesh it out um, close to the text, but but with a little more of a constructive approach? I have no idea. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. It seems like in general, Janine, that just being aware as Bible readers of literary genre just immediately will make Bible reading experiences for us richer, deeper better, right? There's just going to be more that we get out of it 
if we're tuned into this, um, and the, the more we're tuned in, I think the more the benefit will grow. So um, that's just a, a great, I think, word of encouragement for regular Bible readers today. Yes. And when you mention genre, you have to think about that biblical author. Now, I want to, we've been talking about authors as if, and I don't know if we've mentioned God as author. I want to just affirm, I do believe scripture comes from God and is, you know, God inspired these authors. But genre puts us on the, the plane of the human author. And I think that's okay, because I think when we get there, we really then grapple with this reality that this is revelation from God through human um, authors who are inspired to write what they wrote. Yeah, I love that. And um, Glenn and and we at IFBR did a series of blog posts a few months back about like the story of the Bible told through trees or through water or through food, just very like keeping it very close to the ground, yeah. as you were saying. And, and how did these authors bring in the, the natural elements of the, mm. the earth and, you know, kind of the grit of the world into this uh, story rather mm. than just keeping it, you know, up in the clouds and mm. theoretical mm. and that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, I love that. But uh, let's just go around the room real quick and, uh, and discuss our favorite genres or, uh, your personal genre with the Bible, if there's a genre that has kind of grown on you over time that, uh, that you couldn't get your head around or anything. Uh, I guess I'll start and Janine will end with you and okay. Paul and Glenn, you can pick who goes first. Um, for me, it's been it's been letters, um, Paul's epistles, especially. I feel like there's this interesting challenge in it where you are reading somebody else's mail and it is for uh, a certain church in a certain time in a certain place, but there's also plenty in there that's for us. Right. And so there's this, um, kind of implicit challenge in there of how do you figure out what Paul was saying for the first century Corinth church only, and how do you figure out what he was saying for us today? And there's kind of this challenge, I guess, of, oh. of unearthing that it's kind of archeological or something where you, you're dusting away and trying to figure out, uh, what there is there for us. So I've always uh, just enjoyed that element of it. Yeah, I'll go next. I'll say uh, narrative, I think, is the thing that has grown on me the most. And, and in a way that has pointed out to me that I don't really know how to read narrative. And I think I was brought up in a, in a you know, Christian home and in the church, Christian school, all the way through. And I think no one ever really taught me what to look for, or what's a what's a good way? What's the way to be a virtuous reader of narrative? I've been reading Jewish authors like John Levinson and Robert Alter, and realizing that there are things going on, to speak here of the Hebrew Bible, things going on in those stories that I was never aware of. And I've been around the Bible my entire life. And I think I have so much more to learn how to read narrative well, and that there are kind of hidden um, benefits in narrative that I would tend to read over. And by reading Jewish authors, I'm getting much more tuned into that. So narrative is my new favorite. Yeah, for me as uh, someone who's been a fairly serious Bible reader since I was 17, uh, I would say that poetry is uh, capturing my imagination these days. I always loved the poetry in, in the Psalms. That, that always resonated with me. But sadly, it's taken me till this long to really begin to appreciate the uh, the poetry and the prophets almost mm -hmm. exclusively, right? That's the vehicle mm -hmm. in which which they deliver. And I just finished reading the book of Job. 
And again, dawned on me that I've known the story of Job and I've read different commentaries on that. But the poetry there is stunning and it's raw and it's uh, uncensored. I just was going back and looking at my notes. Job speaking out of his deep pain says, speaking of God, he says, when a plague sweeps through, he laughs at the death of the innocents. Well, that's a... That that's a different kind of theology, and yeah. and to your point, it's a different kind of experience, and it's as though the Bible is inviting us to live with God, yeah. um, at that level. So, uh, the poetry and and again, understanding the parallelism and understanding uh, that has has brought poetry uh, poetry to life for me. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to give two answers after your wonderful responses. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, so I'm going to say narrative, but I, I would want to say that I've been intrigued recently to think about the poetry in the New Testament. There's no book that's poetic, right? But uh, um, Philippians 2, 6 through 11 is poetic. Um, uh, Colossians 1 is stylized at least toward poetry. And there are poems in the pastorals that are just really you know, whether hymns or poems, I, it's just an interesting area that I think someday I want to do something on all that. And I love that in the Common English Bible, John 1 is set up as poetic with little mm. insertions about John the Baptist. Take a look at it. It's cool. Mm. I nice. mean, and it, it says something. So there's something there, but I will say narrative. After all of that, um, Kevin Van Hooser calls narrative the darling of the canon at present because it's kind of the narrative term. Um and I think for me, it's it's in reaction to um, having received theology in little bits and kind of abstracted from um, texts, even from um, epistle texts. But that in narrative, you just again this this sense of theology just emerges from story, and you have to think about that thoughtfully. It doesn't just emerge and suddenly I got it. I've got to kind of engage it. Um, but it presses me to read the whole story. 21 chapters of John, as I say at the end of my book, Gospels of Stories, will leave you more breath breathless than certain. Uh, you can yeah. always master a small little bit of text, but when we're thinking about whole books and their whole genres, there's something that just, you go sit back and go, oh, vista, breathe. Like when you see a mountain or an ocean. We should have some of that when we get to how many chapters in Job? 42? I mean, you you, you got to stop and go <gasps> at the end, right? I can't get all of this. That's an okay place to be as a Bible reader. Hmm. But hopefully with some tools to get something. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Brown, for joining us. This has been great. And and I think all three of us learned quite a bit just, just from this interview. It's been um, great to be and here. And I think, I think our listeners probably have an appreciation for genre, genre that they might not have picked up in their high school English class. So to our listeners, um, I know a lot of you probably don't want to become seminarians. Um, if you do, you can check out Bethel, Bethel Seminary with Dr. Brown. But I would encourage all of you to just start trying to figure out the basics of genre and, and some of the rules of the road, I guess, for, for engaging some of these genres. And um, you don't have to become a scholar, but maybe just start poking around with the basics. Maybe, maybe Dr. Brown's books are a... Uh, a good place to start. So um, if you want to engage with those, you can pick up Scripture as Communication um, and the Gospels as Stories, both on Amazon. I'll put links to those in the show notes. If you find this content helpful, we'd love it if you shared it with your friends or rate and review on your podcast provider so other people can find us. And uh, that's going to do it for today's show. So thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next one. <laughs>